Welcome back to Blasphemous Nutrition. I'm your favorite naughty nutritionist, Amy, and today I interview an unlikely source who has examined the root cause of many of our cravings and how to solve them. Could this be the key to eliminating fear around knowing what to eat? Tune in and decide for yourself. Hey, Rebels. Welcome to Blasphemous Nutrition. Consider this podcast your pantry full of clarity, perspective, and the nuance needed to counter the superficial health advice so freely given on the internet. I'm Amy, the unapologetically candid host of Blasphemous Nutrition and a double-degreed nutritionist with 20 years' experience. I'm here to share a more nuanced take on living and eating well to sustain and recover your health. If you found most health advice to be so generic as to be meaningless, or so extreme that it's unrealistic, and you don't mind the occasional F-bomb, you've come to the right place. From dissecting the latest nutrition trends to breaking down published research and sharing my own clinical experiences, I'm on a mission to foster clarity amidst all the confusion and empower you to have the health you need to live a life you love. Now let's get started. Marty Kendall, welcome to Blasphemous Nutrition. Amy, great to chat. Great name, Blasphemous. Let's do it. Let's get Blasphemous. (laughs) (laughs) So there's going to be some people listening who know who you are, but I'm going to assume that the majority aren't as familiar with you, uh, certainly as I am. So why don't we start off with kind of like, tell me, tell me how you fell into the rabbit hole of nutrient yeah. density, because this isn't you like you didn't come from the same no, stuff I did, right? You com- don't have complete accident. I have no education or brainwashing or blinkers about nutrition. So yeah, um, I just married well. So um, uh, married Monica twenty two years ago, and she happens to have type one diabetes, and it was just a a quest initially when we started to think about having kids and look at the risks of a diabetic pregnancy went wow that's pretty scary we need to get serious about this and yeah i started trying to stand the relationship between insulin and carbohydrates and how to dose for that and that was sort of the first step and then maybe 10 years ago i came across the food insulin index and went hey i can quantify this to understand the foods that will help money stabilize her blood sugar and need less insulin for her meals and then it's like oh everything that requires less insulin in the short term is just pure fat. So that's I had some understanding of nutrient density and some people, um, Rob Wolf had been talking about Matt Lalonde at the time, who had just spent a weekend diving into the USDA database and quantifying that and making a pretty cool nutrient density ranking. And I tried to replicate that and join it together with the food insulin index to make a multi- variate analysis to combine those two parameters um yeah i suppose as you can see i'm an engineer by by training and that's my background so up until that point i've been de- designing roads and bridges and you know so I, think I just have a quantitative mind that understands and believes data that's where i started and it just kept going and i kept sharing and people dug it and found it helpful and i just went this is really interesting this is really important for my family and a couple of years ago my son who just turned 18 yesterday got type 1 himself so that was the day i quit engineering so the the last day in the office we're also in the hospital getting wow. his first insulin dose so it was like the world telling me yeah this this is your thing so it's just yeah been a whole lot of fun to Find a quantitative agnostic approach to nutrition because so much of the time, I love the name of the podcast, Blasphemous Nutrition, because nutrition is so much the time religious. It's a religious belief system in different ways to different degrees, but it's so much superstition and fear in nutrition. Absolutely. And it's like, let's let's quantify this. Let's Let's get to the root cause. What does our body need? What does it crave? And how can we do that more efficiently? How can we give our bodies exactly what it needs, the right nutrients with just the right amount of energy uh, so we can thrive and get out of this hellhole of uh, nutrition that's dominated by fear and profit? So, yeah, I think the biggest problem is just profit. Everything's about profit. And we get educated to buy the things that are most profitable. And driven by fear to do so. 
yeah, everything's trying to kill you, according to someone on the internet, whether it's <laughs> saturated fat or carbs or plants or animal-based foods or oxalates or, you know, spinach or meat or red meat or processed meats. It's like crazy. Everything's trying to kill you. So food becomes a, you know, I can't eat this and so afraid of food and then I'm addicted to food because I've been restricting food. And it's just right. what a crazy hellhole we've created in nutrition that everything's fearful and the best way to best way for the plant-based peeps to tell you that you shouldn't eat animals is to make you afraid of cholesterol and saturated fats and you know tmao or whatever the latest thing is that you can drag up to say you should be afraid of and then the carnivore crowd are saying it's oxalates and plants and you know those little spinach bok choy things that trying to suffocate you during the night and uh you know be afraid don't don't sleep near a bok choy plant it's like it's crazy whatever you share on twitter just gets howled down by the other side and um yeah what can we eat what you know what what do our bodies need eating as part of life and how do we live life to the fullest without living in fear right right i'm I'm curious because I didn't realize I knew you were an engineer, but I didn't realize you were like structural engineering, like building bridges and and things. Yeah. So that was my gig. So I was I was designing bridges, and I'm just an analysis nerd. And was there something the particular about your wife's guidance and her pregnancy that that made you like jump into this whole uh, other pond to? explore what she needed my wife's sister is a really great doctor and she recommended another doctor who had just been starting to dive down the, the rabbit hole of quantification of insulin dosing for carbs and he just helped me understand it was a numbers game this is all just numbers yeah. and i went i'm an engineer i get this i can so through the pregnancy it was a continual thing of updating her insulin sensitivity as she grew bigger and needed more insulin. So every week I'd update the little insulin sensitivity chart and that was 22 years ago and I just realized this is all, it's all a numbers game and the quality of her life from back then to now is radically different. But I keep imagining what her life could have been if when she was diagnosed at 10, her mum had understood what we know now and I think, well, if other people with type one kids could know what we know or you know the rest of the world this is sort of spilled over from type one to type two to satiety to nutrient density it applies to everybody and i just want this is a really worthy quest and i can burn through my retirement savings and uh keep blogging you know it's like i used to be a used to want to be a jazz musician used to love playing saxophone and the joke that got me through engineering is what's the difference between a large pit, large pizza and a jazz musician? A, a, a large pizza can fit a family, and um, you know, what did the <laughs> what did the jazz musician do when he won the million dollar lotto? We just kept gigging till he ran out of money, and uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing with nutrition. <laughs> you know, we can stay home and eat well and hang out with the family, and I can keep on blogging and uh, analyzing nerdy stuff because I love it. So it's just completely fascinating and really important. So I've got these yeah. massive spreadsheets of all this data that can help me pinpoint what, what humans need in their food. Tell me a little bit more <clears throat> about how your wife's quality of life has changed. I mean, particularly, there's a lot of attention with type 2 diabetes and carbohydrate yep. intake, and we kind of leave type yep. 1 off the table I think, you know, since it's a completely different mechanism, I don't know, I'm just throwing yeah, it. Yeah, I mean. But how has, yeah, that, the, how has her life changed? The, the, the mechanism is definitely different because with type 1, the pancreas fails due to an autoimmune condition. Right. With type 2, it's basically uh, you exceed your personal fat threshold and all the energy backs up into your system and you see elevated glucose because you've you've reached energy toxicity that you've got too much energy in your system and you get end up with glucose and free fatty acids and ketones in your blood which don't look good but it's really the re root cause is you're over fat because you've been eating low satiety nutrient poor foods but yeah i mean the quality of life for money has radically changed in terms of energy levels mood depression um uh, you know her life when she was diagnosed at 10, she was told, you know, 
you might reach 40, you might reach 50 if you're lucky. The last 10, 20 years of your life are going to be not good. So, yeah, I've never met anybody who's so comfortable with death that she, when she was 10, she was basically told she'd die early and here, here we are at 47, thriving, we're going on a cruise in a week and, you know, her life would be better if she'd never had type 1 diabetes, but looking at her now, you wouldn't know. So a lot of the mood depression, uh, I mean, to start with, when, once, when your blood sugars are in a massive roller coaster, your energy levels, your hunger, your mood are completely dis- dysregulated because her blood sugars are more stable. Um, her life isn't driven by, I need to eat now because I just injected too much insulin. So that's definitely the first step for anybody on type 1 or type 2 is to stabilise the blood sugars into healthy levels. But I think where we get into trouble with you know, keto and low-carb is that if low-carb is good, zero-carb must be better and fat is a free food. So that's the whole keto rabbit hole that we all went down 10 years ago chasing more elevated ketones and that was another belief that I had to understand with data is to un- unlearn, um, yeah, to, to understand why that's not the case and that, that's been fun. Yeah. Tell me more about that personal fat threshold. I think that's a term that not a lot of people are familiar mm. with. Yeah, so Professor Roy Taylor, genius guy, started looking at the body fat, the effect on body fat on on diabetes and we often think diabetes because it aligns with an elevated glucose is a condition of carb intolerance so you know you're obviously allergic to carbohydrates because you eat carbs and your blood sugars go up but when you understand the fuel tanks in your body your the glucose in your blood is like 20 calories worth of energy five grams of glucose and then we got the your liver and muscle glycogen, then you've got the fat in your blood and the fat in your body. And if you look at, I mean, you, you can exchange glucose to fat and fat to glucose via gluconeogenesis and et cetera, et cetera. We could get in the rabbit hole there. But really the fundamental problem is when your fat stores get over full, there's no room in your body for the energy from the food you eat to be absorbed into your muscles, absorbed into your your fat so it really just backs up in your system your your fat is full your fat fuel tank is full your glycogen in your muscles and liver is full so it it just overflows into your bloodstream and we see type 2 diabetes elevated glucose and everybody's got a different personal fat threshold so south asian people tend to maybe it's because they carry uh, you know, less muscle in their glutes and the like, and they can absorb less energy so that they have a smaller sponge that can be filled before that energy backs up into their into their, their blood and it becomes toxic, really. And once it backs up into your blood, you see the overflow into your, you know, your liver and pancreas and every vital organ gets full of fat. And that's when it becomes toxic and problematic. Meanwhile, you've got the the Maori and you know Australian Aboriginal and a number of cultures that maybe they uh, their history comes from. Well, our ancestors got in a boat and rode for twenty weeks or something crazy to get to a new island, and the ones that survived were the ones that could build up a lot of fuel in their body. So those people can get quite obese before it overflows into their their bloodstream and before they tap out their, their fat stores. So that's the personal fat threshold concept. And the, the root cause of type 2 diabetes largely is uh, maybe there's some sort of autoimmune co- component to it, but it's largely once your your body fat stores tap out and they can't fill anymore and then it becomes dangerous when all that excess energy from your low satiety nutrient poor diet overflows into your bloodstream right yeah because when i was growing up we basically were under this idea that your body could create as all the fat cells that you could just keep getting more and more that was kind of an infinite growth potential but 
it turns out that's actually not true. And at some point it goes from mm. being stored in adipose tissue to being stored in the organs or just yeah. stuck in the bloodstream. Oh. Yeah, you you can grow little baby new fat cells to a degree, but eventually it that capacity taps out. You you, right. you just fill up and fill up and fill up and there's a limit to how big your fat cells can grow and how many new fat cells you can grow. And once you fill that, your body goes, well, that's it. it. Like, where else do I store this energy that we keep on eating body? Well, okay. Liver, organs, pancreas. And once your, your liver and pancreas and heart and brain and everywhere else start getting chocked up with excess energy, then, then we're in trouble. And that's the, the root cause of metabolic disease and all the things that are killing us in our modern world, basically everything, but getting hit by a bus is due to eating trash food that's made for profit. Yeah. So why don't we just, uh, why isn't, why don't you believe the answer is to just eat fewer calories from trash food? <laughs> How is it more <laughs> complex than that? <laughs> Have you ever tried? It sounds like you're making an argument for calories in, calories out. Just eat less your personal under your personal fat threshold, and everything will be fine. I mean, that I could yeah. see taking that, taking that message away. But I know yeah. you to know that's not true. Yeah, it's definitely about energy balance. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't just eat for energy; we eat for nutrients as well. So, I mean that. Our modern drugs mimic satiety. We've got Azempic, which is going to be the biggest, right. best money-making drug in the world, which is going to enable people to go from, I used to eat 10 donuts a day and now I can eat six. And, you know, what are the long-term implications of that? They're going to get, they were getting 50 grams of protein before, now they're going to get 30 grams of protein a day. They were getting... Yeah, virtually no potassium and they're going to get very little potassium. They're going to get even less calcium and all these nutrients that our bodies need to thrive, that we crave, that we eat to get, um, we're, we're going to get less of them. And as soon as you take that artificial break off your appetite, what's going to happen? You're just going to go, wow, I'm just going to eat everything because I'm so malnourished. I'm just going to keep on eating and eating and eating. And that's why after two years of Ozempic, people who come off it, they can't stop eating and they just instantly, you know, in the next few months, regain all that weight. So, um, yes, it's about energy balance, but energy balance is about getting the nutrients you need. It's not just the energy. We don't eat for only energy. We eat to get protein or amino acids. We eat to get potassium, sodium, calcium iron, you know, there's all these nutrients that have declined in our food system since the 40s, 50s, since we okay. industrialized our agriculture, since we super fueled it with fossil fuel fertilizers that just, you know, injected energy into our system. We're getting more energy, less nutrients. So we have to keep on eating to get those nutrients. So yes, it's about energy balance, but we're eating more because we're not getting the nutrients that we used to 50, 100 years ago from our food system because it just contains less nutrients because we've diluted the nutrients with cheap energy from sugar, refined flour, and a massive amount of vegetable oils, industrial seed oils that are just, you know, used to be a waste product and they worked out how to put it in food. And uh, what a great idea. And it's heart healthy vegetable oil and we're now eating 800 calories per day per person more from fat than 100 wow. years ago 800 it's it's ginormous amount and it's just a waste product that's incredibly cheap refined vegetable oil is just it's so easily assimilated into our system that there's there's no dietary thermogenesis there's no uh you know digestion of that it's just instantly stored and you know your body look with protein you might lose 35 percent of that energy in you know converting it to muscle and converting it to atp but with all this really refined fat it just goes straight into storage body goes welcome aboard we are good to go you can just sit here and here and here and here and it just accumulates so meanwhile we're just our body is going, I need to eat more. I'm addicted to food because I'm trying to get the nutrients I need 
from the food I'm eating and it's just so nutrient poor. It's got minimal protein, potassium, calcium, sodium, iron, all these sort of critical nutrients that have declined in our food system. Mm-hmm. So you you took this data that you were, you know, kind of discovering and researching and looking at to help your wife. And and I if I remember correctly, you had shared it somewhere on the internet and it just kind of went gangbusters. And now you yeah. have this whole community you've got nutrient optimizer and several several different programs and they're in a community that really teaches people to essentially chase after nutrients and to understand Mm. own personal fat threshold is that yeah 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 um so six years ago we booted off uh we, we developed nutrient optimizer to try and show people how to get the nutrients they need in food so it's an app that says, you know, what are you eating now? How can we find other foods and meals that complement what you're eating to fill in your nutrient gaps? So that just gave us access to a massive amount of data. And then I found half a million days of my fitness pal data and then recently bought in the NHANES data set, which is how the average American eats. So now I've got 836,000 days of uh, macronutrient data that gives you a really nice understanding of the exact bliss points that we crave and and how to manipulate your diet to satisfy your cravings with less energy which i think is you know the holy grail of nutrition how do you satisfy your appetite without having to overeat i think that's it that what's the ultimate question of nutrition how do you give your body what it needs without excess energy you need energy you want to run around you want to be active you want to exercise you you need energy but we're just eating too much energy to get the nutrients we need what are some of the key things that you found in taking a look at all of that data that really kind of emerge up to the top as being the the things that that we are seeking from our food that we're not getting enough of yeah i mean the 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 biggest things we realized that we were getting berry berry so we fortified with vitamin B1 in America and most of the rest of the world. We said, oh, we can fix that. We just dump in a whole lot of synthetic B1 into our food system. We're getting pellagra, so we'll just dump in a lot of synthetic B3 into our food system. We're we're anemic, we're iron deficient. We're going to dump in a whole lot of iron filings into our cocoa puffs and Nutrigrain and brag that it's a great source of... uh, of iron and all these nutrients and we're we're getting spina bifida so we're going to dump in some folic acid which i don't think has the same function as natural folate from vegetables so we we satisfied all these deficiencies of of the small vitamins with synthetic additives so we worked that out but what we don't get in our food system what has actually declined and is still lacking is you know protein has been diluted by energy from fat and carbs potassium has gone down it's now a nutrient of concern iron is the although it's fortified in a lot of places it's still the number one nutrient of concern worldwide that people are deficient in particularly when they're not getting enough animal products Uh, calcium is really low and is a nutrient of concern so they're the major nutrients that then show up in our multivariate analysis as the nutrients that align with greater satiety. So if you're packing in more protein, calcium, potassium, iron, sodium into your diet, sodium has actually declined in our food system since the 1940s. As much as we're mm. advised to limit sodium, it sort of makes sense if you're trying to limit your sodium and then along come the Doritos and, and chips that have got the laced with sodium and then this perfect blend of fat and carbs. So if, if you've been advised to restrict sodium because sodium is bad and then you've got this bag of chips in front of you, you're not going to stop eating it because you, you're trying to get your sodium from um, those chips. So, yeah, it, it, we, we, we're just this nutrient-sensing seeking missile in the environment that we just keep on uh, we just keep on craving nutrients and seeking out the priority nutrients that we need from our food system and it's just it's just a numbers game again if we can mimic our appetite with numbers we can solve the problem in the most efficient way so if we're if we're seeking nutrients why why don't my clients crave vegetables 
<laughs> well, I mean, after okay. they start eating them, I feel like then they then they start. But but at the onset, like when people come to me, they're their complaint isn't like, I just, I can't stop eating vegetables. I'm addicted like, to broccoli, Amy. I'm, I just can't, can't stop binging on broccoli. Yeah, exactly. I just keep craving all the potassium and the magnesium. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's really interesting. And if you look at, well, let's take sodium. Um, we see this bliss point curve for each of the nutrients. So if you're not getting enough sodium, you'll crave salty foods till you get 2.9 grams per 2,000 calories of sodium. But once you add too much sodium to food, it tastes too salty, and your and your taste buds go bah, 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 oh, This is this is too salty. This is too nutrient dense. So for each of the nutrients, there's sort of this bliss point and then an optimal nutrient intake that we've defined as maximum three times the bliss point. So once foods, and that's a good point, like you look at all the most nutrient-dense foods that contain the most nutrients per calorie, people go, eh, I'm never addicted to those foods. I'm not craving those foods. I'm, I'm like the spinach and bok choy and asparagus and these nutrient-dense plant-based foods. They have a, a strong bitter taste that signals to your body you're getting all the nutrients you need with less energy. So let's not overeat those foods because you don't need much asparagus or broccoli or whatever to get a ton of nutrients. They sort of have a very strong taste. Liver has a strong taste. Mackerel has a strong taste that sort of puts a break on your appetite that says, let's not overeat this. We don't need much of it to get all the magnesium potassium and sodium we need but then you look at the foods that are designed to make you overeat them they're formulated to contain just the right amount and even supplemented fortified to contain just the right amount of pretty much all the nutrients that go you know this has got a little bit of you know sodium b1 b3 you know all the nutrients just enough to be seductive. It's like this, you know, it, it seduces you to say, hey, we've got nutrients here, but you just have to eat 6,000 calories worth of us <laughs> to get the nutrients your body needs. So just keep on eating and you just go, oh, the, the food tastes good. And like those addictive foods, they don't taste amazing. They just taste just palpable, palatable enough. But there's something about them you can't stop eating because you have to keep eating a lot of them to get the nutrients you need. So yeah, the, the satiety is a, a fascinating numbers game and, and the, the, the foods we desire and think we crave um, often aren't the, you know, it, it, numbers help us understand what our body is actually craving and needing. Right, right. In terms of protein, when you take a look at the data, where's the that optimal protein intake i mean i know it's going to vary individual to individual yeah. but generally speaking bird's eye view yeah um as you inferred everybody's protein intake is going to vary depending on how much muscle mass they have um how much activity they're doing if you're lifting heavy you'll crave more protein but the best way to you know you go oh, i don't like protein it's like go deadlift, like lift something really heavy and your muscles will be going, I need protein to recover from this. Give me, you know, the high protein foods, give me the steak and listen to a podcast with Sean Baker on the Harbour podcast. And he's talking about eating 500 plus grams of protein a day because he's a, he's a big guy and he's very active and lifts a lot. So if, if you, if you're damaging your muscles, they want to repair and grow. So yeah, that's the that's the magic to craving more protein. And you, but in terms of percentage, um, if you're getting less than twelve and a half percent protein, your body will crave more protein. So if you're eating, um, if you're a fruitarian or a um, plant-based low oil person, uh, sitting at seven percent protein, and someone puts a steak in front of you, you're gonna you know, maybe crave that protein that that steak or you're gonna be dreaming of uh you know some people i hear stories of amnesic eating of the the hardcore 
plant-based people and you know once they have a piece of salmon their life is different etc etc so if you're on a very very low protein you'll crave 12 and a half percent protein which isn't a lot no but once once you eat more than 12 percent protein 12 and a half percent protein you'll be satisfied with less energy so in our classes we advise people to find out where they are if you're 15% protein, which most of the population is, let's try 20% protein, which is just a matter of dialing back your energy from fat and carbs while prioritizing protein. If you're not losing weight consistently with that, which a lot of people do, let's go to 25, 30, 35. Um, 40% seems to be a nice stretch target. A lot of people in our challenges get to 50 and even 60% protein if they're super oh. hardcore. But once you get to 40%, there's probably other nutrients in your diet that are more important than protein. You're getting all the amino acids you need. Let's start looking at potassium and calcium and iron and making sure you're getting, let's look at your micros and fine-tune those others because dialing in your protein will get you most of the way. It'll get you a long way down the track. High-protein foods tend to be quite nutritious, but it's you, know, you can eat a ton of protein powder, but if you're not eating the, the, the non-starchy veggies, you're probably missing out on magnesium, potassium, and a bunch of other K1 and all these other harder-to-find nutrients. So once you're getting your minimum amount of protein, if you want to keep going, optimizing your diet, let's look at the other nutrients that are currently not contained in your diet for best results in terms of satiety and longevity. Yeah, I do actually see that. Clinically, like people who tend to lean heavily into the protein powders will often, they won't have, they won't experience the satiety to the, mm. to a greater extent, like someone who yeah. is, you know, choosing something like, like fish or, or poultry mm. or, or beef or pork. Yeah, definitely. yeah. Yeah. Protein powders are pre-digested to a degree. So they'll exactly. assimilate into your body really quickly. And a lot of the time they're, they're designed to be overeaten. You look at the ingredients, a lot of the commercial protein powders that get really promoted, they're designed to be tasty and overeaten. So, yeah, protein powders can play a role if you need to supplement your protein, if mm -hmm. you're lifting a lot and you need to bump up your protein. But, you know, the, the whole food protein sources are going to be more nutritious and more satiating over the long term. So, yeah, don't, it's not just everybody wants the easy magic pill. Everybody wants to sell you the easy magic pill. And, and we looked at the the cost per kilo of protein and protein powders are really expensive compared to you know, steak or whatever, mints. You know, if you want to get cost-effective protein, get it from a whole food source. Yeah, definitely. So somewhere between, it sounds like somewhere between that 20 and 40% range is where most people end up doing really well is that what you yeah think? if you're on a, a lower carb diet the the biggest lever of satiety is the protein percentage so right. that's people will get to 20 30 percent quite easily and then they can push to 40 50 percent if they're really getting hardcore and really want to lose weight quickly but then once you've got to your ideal body weight you need to bring back energy to bring the protein percentage back and it's hard to live at 50 all the time your body will crave energy because protein is a really poor source of energy which is a benefit and a disbenefit if you're i know you've found in our classes if you're uh, if you're lifting a lot or really active or doing a lot of running your body will crave the the energy the carbs the fat which is fine you just need to find that balance point for you if you're on a lower fat diet, you may not need as much protein, but then the energy density, calcium, potassium, iron, even vitamin C are the, uh, the satiety levers. If you're finding foods that contain more of those, they tend to be more satiating on a lower fat diet. So there's sort of different satiety signatures for different types of diets as you dig down the rabbit hole. Do you know why that is? Like what it is about um, managing those or mitigating the the shift in those macros that creates. Yeah. I think on a lower fat diet, protein is just less available and maybe iron is less available. So you're craving the iron and lower fat diets tend to be 
have a lower energy density. So some people can get the energy density lever into place, whereas if you're on a lower carb diet, it's a fairly energy dense diet. So nobody's eating the uh, the, the bowl of broccoli soup or the you know uh, the head of three heads of cauliflower and the massive amount of spinach that you actually need to trigger the energy density effect energy density satiety effect so you've got Robin Harmon and Simpson that talk about protein leverage and how do you trigger protein leverage it's eating high protein foods which is the steak and the, you know and then you got barber rolls talking protein about leverage real quick for those who are unfamiliar uh, yeah, yeah so it's sort of going back to what i talked about before that we crave enough protein to get to 12 and a half percent protein and then as we pack more protein into our energy budget as we get a higher protein percentage we eat less so robin homer and simpson two bright amazing professors for the, from the university of sydney they were entomologists and started looking at grasshoppers and realized that, you know, whether it be, you know, slime, mold, um, orangutans or humans or grasshoppers, we all eat until we get enough protein. And they found in a protein dilute environment, we eat more. And our, our food system has been diluted of protein since the 1977 dietary goals were introduced for Americans and we're eating less protein. So it, it's only gone down marginally, like by one and a half percent, but it's enough to explain the increase in energy to explain the obesity ep epidemic. Um, so yeah, so that's protein leverage. And then you've got Barbara Rolls talking about low energy density diets. So it's sort of like this dichotomy of she's saying eat watery soups and just add water to your rice and have a glass of water with everything and that will work it'll give you short-term satiation it'll make you feel full in the short term it's and all classic 1970s diet tips yeah 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 totally um cabbage soup diet it, exactly and it, it works for two hours and then you're just really hungry and and the problem with all these satiety studies is that they measure the satiety response over two hours and it's like oh god who cares how hungry i am in two hours i want to know how hungry i'm going to eat be in two days um yeah so i mean there's there's two angles on satiety that are dominant in in the community and you've got the cabbage soup diet versus the sean baker's carnivore diet and it's like the antithesis how does this work and really they're both factors that protein leverage and energy density are both factors and then nutrient density potassium calcium sodium iron tend to be major dominant factors that we seem to be craving in our diet because they've declined in our food system so when people go through the go through the program your macros masterclass, your micros masterclass, and they start getting more of these nutrient dense foods. What mm. happens? They say, I'm only eating X amount of calories. Is that too little? I'm full. I can't eat any more and I'm losing weight. And it's like, well, if you're losing weight and you're full and you're satisfied, you're getting the nutrients you need and your body is saying enough. And this is crazy. I, I was told that I'd get you know, my slowed metabolism and I should fear that because I'm eating too little calories. And well, that's welcome to satiety. That's how it works. Once you give your body what it needs, your appetite switches off and they go, oh, that, that's crazy. Um, Yeah. Oh, look, I'm shredded. This is so cool. <laughs> um, and I suppose we, we also say if you're losing weight at more than 1% per week, you try a little bit too hard, dial that back. But okay. if you're not losing more than 1% per week, um, you're getting enough calories and you've got to limit your risk of losing lean mass. So that's the big thing is um, your metabolic rate will slow if you lose muscle. And if you try to, if you go on Ozempic and eat, five donuts rather than 10 donuts a day, you will lose muscle. Your metabolic rate will go down. You will get cold. You will get miserable. You will get depressed and you'll be, you may be skinny. You'll probably be skinny fat still because you've lost all your muscle, but you want to keep your muscle and you want to feed the muscle, burn the fat. Um, right. Old Tom Venito saying. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's just, look, that's it. Feed the muscle, mm -hmm. protein, lift stuff burn the fat so that's a matter of dialing back 
the fat and the carbohydrates. So I I was reading a little bit of the the paper that you sent me. I did get a chance to kind of crack it open. And <laughs> you went, and wow, there was there's one, a lot of words there. There was one thing that really jumped out. Um, and you had talked about a 2016 paper um, that was that was discussing GLP-1 stimulation by nutrient-rich mm. And I was like, I got to know more about this because everybody's talking about GLP-1 right now and nobody's talking about it from a food standpoint and that foods we eat could actually also trigger this hormone. So take me on a ride. Yeah, Yeah, there's no money in selling nutrient-dense food that naturally promotes GLP-1 and satiety. It's like what raises satiety hormones in your body it's food that contain nutrients that tell your body i've got the nutrients and energy i need it happens when you eat nutritious foods and your body says okay i've got i'm just the more i've dug into this the more fascinated i am by our appetite and it's just this wonderful mysterious our bodies are this amazing organism that we understand so little of consciously but our subconscious appetite is driving us to you know every time i eat it's just fascinating to want to to just observe and watch my son and watch my dog and i just observe their fascination with food and what food does my dog crave and go absolutely nuts over and what food does it just completely ignore yeah but if you your appetite is satisfied and you stimulate all the the satiety hormones with nutritious food that contains protein and fiber and it has a lower energy density and potassium and calcium and basically the things you're needing imagine as i said a nutrient sensing missile just going okay i'm I'm needing calcium i'm going to keep on eating dairy foods i'm needing protein i'm going to have to eat six thousand calories worth of doritos to get it or i'm going to have a steak or lean protein that's going to satisfy that with less energy yeah and there's no money in that so there's not a lot of research crazily it's like why are we not looking at that that's where the solution is but everybody online is telling you how amazing glp1 drug it's like oh tell me about your association with the money flow from GLP-1 drugs. All oh, right, you just sold a company to Weight Watchers for $132 million. Wow, cool. That's why you're motivated to promote them. Fantastic. Well, money that's, trail, right? That, that, that's an interesting coincidence in your pro-GLP-1s. <laughs> and like the money flow to everybody to educate us about drugs and food from the people who are making money yeah it's just really hard for the poor individual to find information that's unpolluted by commercial conflicts of interest it's extremely especially in america yes especially yes because i mean our universities are are funded by the food industry and i i went to a private university and so my education was not funded by kellogg or or nestle but most of the most of the degrees that one gets in the United States, if they're heading in this field, their nutrition program is is often, particularly if there's research going on at that mm. university, is is funded by the food industry, mm. and mm. and that obviously can create, you know, maybe not an overt conflict of interest, but one would be mindful of what one is willing to say. If the person that's mm. paying them might get upset mm. if they, you know, mm. say that, well, mm. maybe, maybe mm. we shouldn't be having mm. Coca-Cola or as part of a moderate diet. <laughs> mm. 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 Uh, moderate your food and everything. Moderation is a little bit crazy, but anyway. I mean, what does that even mean? It's basically like do what you want is, is, yeah. you know, it's, it doesn't Intuitive eating, you know intuitive eating in the modern environment where you've got uber eats it's like i feel like uber eats and you know i feel like pizza hut and it's like yeah um if you can control your food environment it's different if you've only got nutritious whole foods around you you will naturally like um robin Harmon simpson 
David Rabenholm when I talked to him, what's your best piece of advice? He said, shop with your brain, eat with your appetite. So once you've got your food environment controlled, you you know exactly what you crave. It's like I went for a run. I'm, I'm going to crave some energy. I need to recover. I need to refuel. I'm not as active today. I'm going to go for the leaner, nutrient-dense foods. But in this environment where the nutrients are so poor, the nutrient density is so poor, you know, we, yeah, unless you prioritize nutrient density first, you're going to be a victim, a slave to your appetite and everything in moderation. It's like, yeah, good luck. You know, <laughs> when everything's designed by Nestle and Kellogg's and sanitarium to make you overeat them, they have used the same technology that I've been talking about since the 1980s to formulize food to make you eat more to make more profit from the cheapest ingredients possible they it's a massive industry they have perfected it they know exactly what it takes to make you eat the most while making the most money and you know costing the least and the the cheapest ingredients are just you know flour, sugar, vegetable oils with colours, flavourings and a few synthetic nutrients so you'll keep on going, yeah, this is sort of nutritious. Uh, I'm not going to crave the steak and fish and veggies because I'm getting just enough vitamins from my cocoa pops. So I'll just keep on chowing down. These are great. So going back to controlling your environment, if if someone wants to you know, make an immediate change, right? The next time they go to the grocery store, what are, what would you say would be maybe the top five foods that they should consider putting into their, into their grocery basket? Again, with the caveat that each person has different biochemical needs, different risk of different nutrient deficiencies, right? But in terms of the most, again, the most nutrients per bite, which is really what we're aiming for, Mm. which foods have you seen or with all that data that you believe have the most nutrients per bite? Yeah, I mean, it's as simple as, you know, meat, seafood, non-starchy veggies, maybe with a little bit of fruit possibly, but, you know, fruit is not particularly nutrient-dense, but it's got that low energy density factor that makes it hard to overeat. So it may give you a bit of vitamin C and potassium, but it's not particularly nutritious, but it's hard to overeat. But, yeah, the... Meat, seafood, and, and non-starchy veggies is a great place to start in terms of nutrient density and satiety. But I think on the flip side of, uh, I read Ultra Processed People by Chris Van Tucken recently. It's really fascinating. And he just says, you know, there's a, a a great book about quitting smoking that just says, yeah, keep smoking while you read this and learn about what smoking does to your body and see if by the end of it you want to keep smoking. And and similarly, he takes the same approach to ultra-processed foods and takes you through and says, you know, this is how they make them, this is how they formulate them, this is, you know, why the big investors in the food companies will remove any CEO that gets a conscience and says we're going to make healthy foods with our company they go, hmm, it's not quite as profitable. Or we'll just remove that CEO and bring back a new one that will make more profit. And it's just really tied up. And so I suppose that rant leads to before you put anything in your trolley, look at the ingredient list. Does it contain a combination of sugar, flour, seed oils with uh, colors, flavors, and synthetic nutrients? If it does, then it's formulated to make you eat more of that food to maximize profit. You don't stand a chance against that. And pretty much everything you pick up in the center aisles that has a box and a barcode will follow that formula. It's just the same three ingredients, colored and flavored in different combinations to make you overeat to maximize profit. So yeah, pick it up, read the ingredients list. Is that what your body really needs if you're struggling to stop overeating if you're struggling to get the body composition and energy levels that you are craving you feel miserable because if your body's not getting the nutrients it needs it's probably not a good solution unfortunately it's the cheapest solution a lot of the time because our subsidies are set up Mm -hmm. 
to fund these foods. So if you've got the means, invest in foods that will help your body. And as you invest in foods that taste good because they contain the nutrients they need because they're in, they're grown in a regenerative, happy, healthy environment that is good for you and good for the planet, then that'll make them cheaper. Consumer demand will move and food companies will move. So I, I just hope as we inform people that the foods that contain the nutrients they need are not the ones with the packages and barcodes, then there'll be more demand for the the nutritious foods. And it's not just the poorly raised products, it's the regenerative, regeneratively raised products that actually contain the nutrients. And yeah, there's there's bad things about our meat agricultural system. There's bad things about our monocrop, you know, cereal grain, vegetable oil agricultural system. It's just humans. We eat stuff and we need resources and we damage the planet. But if we create a demand for things that taste amazing because they contain the nutrients we need, then I think the world will be a better place. Oh, I mean, that's that's kind of a mic drop moment right there. So I want to stop and let all of this information sink in. We'll reconvene next week and I'll continue the conversation with Marty and we'll go spelunking in a particularly blasphemous area of nutrition, the connection between religion, morality, and our current dietary guidelines. As always, if this episode reminded you of someone, please share it with them. And if you've not yet subscribed yourself, be sure to do so so that way you can stay connected to a saltier source of information that nourishes you where other podcasts might leave you flat. See you soon. Any and all information shared here is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be misconstrued as offering medical advice. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a provider-client relationship. Note, I'm not a doctor nor a nurse, and it is imperative that you utilize your brain and your medical team to make the best decisions for your own health. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked to this podcast are at the user's own risk. No information nor resources provided are intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Be a smart human and do not disregard or postpone obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you may have. Seek the assistance of your healthcare team for any such conditions and always do so before making any changes to your medical, nutrition, or health plan. If you have found some nuggets of wisdom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and share blasphemous nutrition with those you care about. As you navigate the labyrinth of health advice out there, remember, health is a journey, not a dietary dictatorship. Stay skeptical, stay daring, and challenge the norms that no longer serve you. If you've got burning questions or want to share your own flavor of rebellion, slide into my DMs. Your stories fuel me, and I love hearing them. Thanks again for tuning in to Blasphemous Nutrition. Until next time, this is Amy signing off, reminding you that truth is nuanced, and any dish can be made better with a little bit of sass.